welcome to another episode of the Traveling Entertainer Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cameron, and today's episode is a real treat for me. Anybody that knows me knows that I've been a huge fan of the short-lived career of the late Jeff Buckley. About a year ago, on the anniversary of Jeff's passing, Jeff's manager, Dave Laurie, released the tell-all book entitled Jeff Buckley, From Hallelujah to the Last Goodbye, which chronicalizes Dave's time from the first meeting with Jeff Buckley to the aftermath of his untimely death. I was one of those fans that pre-ordered the book and easily read it in two sittings. It's a fabulous book full of tremendous insight, and I highly recommend that anyone that has slight interest in Jeff's career, or more importantly, anyone that is remotely interested or involved in the music industry, give this book a read, which you can find at jeffbuckleythebook.com. Dave Laurie has had a tremendously long and successful career in the music industry, being a tour manager in the 80s for hair metal bands such as Sabotage, tour manager for the Allman Brothers Band, manager of Courtney Love, and as a booking agent, Dave has booked every act conceivable, and he has worked as a record exec for a good portion of his career. The man is a true legend, and I couldn't be happier that he agreed to be on the podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is that conversation with Dave Laurie. Hey, Dave. Oh, my God. I feel like this is the time that the interview is actually going to happen. <laughs> well, um, oh, man, I'm pretty good. A little bit under the weather, uh, but Paris is nice this time of year, so I really don't have that many complaints. When's the last yeah, time you've been in Paris? You're working it. It's been a few years, but I used to go there all the time for like 25 years. Yeah, and you know, that's kind of one of the reasons why I really, I mean, there's actually two reasons that I, I reached out to you to be on the Traveling Entertainer podcast. The, the first one was, I read the book, I was so excited that you published this book, I was a huge fan of Jeff Buckley, uh, I was lucky enough to see him play live twice in my life, and I actually met Jeff, uh, but the second part is, as I'm doing this podcast, it's really trying to get the most eclectic group of people in the music industry that talk about their travels around the world and their role in the music industry as they go throughout the world. So I know for a fact, you know, you've been here, uh, you were at the La Olympia show with Jeff that was recorded, uh, that was quite a bit of the book, um, but it does seem like traveling the world has been something that you've done probably since you started in the music industry. Does that sound correct? That's correct. I haven't done much in the last 10 years, but uh, yeah, for about 30 years I did. For listeners that haven't read the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into the music industry? Yeah, um, I grew up all over the U.S. My mother was a music teacher, and so I was coming home after school every night or every afternoon and hearing her teach violin and piano and voice lessons, etc. And I guess I was about six years old when I got my first little snare drum, and, and then it turned into a kit, and I was a full-time musician up until the age of 24. That's when I actually, I was managing the bands I was playing at. I actually liked the management better, and I went to New York University and studied music business, and went on the business side of things. One of the things that I got from the book that I thought was incredibly funny is your first band's name was Buster Cherry, but shortly after it changed to AKA, which meant... Always kicking ass. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I got to say, though, reading your, your book, it sounds like your career, you have always been kicking ass. It's a fascinating career. And one of the things that I got from the book is 
First of all, uh, the book really only focuses on 1994 to 1997, really your time with Jeff Buckley, and it kind of skips over a lot of your uh, time in the industry in the 20s. Uh, and a lot of it doesn't really reflect on what happened after Jeff Buckley's death, meaning what happened to your career afterwards. And I'd like to take some time to sort of bookend those parts of your career while we go throughout the entire time um, of, of what you accomplished. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed is it seems like one of the first things that you did was you worked on Prince's Purple Rain Tour. Is that correct? That's correct. I was uh, an intern. I didn't go to college until I was 24. And the woman that uh, was handling the public relations uh, ended up leaving. And Prince's management said since Dave's been working on it over a year, we want him to be the lead publicist. But when I asked Howard Bloom, which was the biggest PR firm in the music business at the time, if I could get paid, because I was working seven nights a week at a record store to help pay for college, uh, he said, you're an intern. We don't have a budget. <laughs> I did the whole tour for free. So it was just basically behind the scenes. Did you, uh, in your career, did you ever end up meeting Prince? I did. Actually, a funny story. I met him once at Madison Square Garden when he played there. But the funny story was I got a call in the middle of the night. He was... Um, Always, my job was to keep him out of the press. He did, for instance, a charity event for kids every city he went to, but he wouldn't let us publicize it. And his bodyguards were constantly offending, you know, paparazzi, keeping them at bay. And when they were recording We Are the World, which is a big hit single with all those artists on it, uh, Prince was in a diner, and he's shy, so he, he said, I'll go in and do my vocals after everybody leaves. Well... He came out, and his bodyguards confronted some paparazzi, and it ended up front page uh, L.A. Times, Los Angeles. And I spun the story, and he called me about three days later. Really? The night. Yeah, I thought it was a college friend uh, playing a prank on me. So I said, yeah, right, and hung up the phone. <laughs> and I came in the next morning, and I hear this person, you know, Dave Lurie getting to my office. It was Howard Blue. He said, you hung up on Prince last night. So, oh, man. Yeah. You got to feel really weird at that particular point. <laughs> Definitely. Like, is but my career just ending exciting. before it's even started? Well, exactly. let, you know, let me ask you this. You know, at what point did you think that uh, the touring lifestyle and being a tour manager suited you and that you could actually do this for a living? Uh, it was when I went out with Sabotage, Megadeth, and Dio. And Megadeth, uh, first record that exploded them. So good, so far, so what? And I was brought out there to be the cleaner. But it's a mafia thing, clean up the mess. Right. Uh, that, was in the, that was in the days of decadence. Uh, so I knew then that I was good at that. And then when I went to Terminator and the Allman Brothers, Within a year, Greg Allman left his management company, and I took over Greg Allman. That's where my management career really took off. I really want to talk about Sabotage, because I hadn't heard of them. Uh, and, you know, I did grow up in that era of the hair metal band, so I was surprised that I'd never really seen them before. But as I was doing some research to talk to you, um, man, these guys were straight out of Spinal Tap. They've got a video. For anybody who listens it, you should pause this right now and go to YouTube and listen to the video for Hall of the Mountain King, from 1987, and that video is straight up pure comedy. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to work for those guys. I mean, was it a lot of fun working for them, or was it just a lot of headache, or, or a lot of both? Um, it was a combination of both. They were really great live bands. Um, Chris Oliva is 
not with us anymore, but rest his soul, um, was a great guitarist and had one pedal on a piece of plywood and had a better sound than the other two headliners. And right. They were they tr- kept trying to steal him from us. They called him Captain Crunch. Uh, <laughs> he had such a uh, great guitar sound. But yeah, I mean they, you know, that was back in the days. We were making it up as we went around, you know, went along in the music business. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I earned a reputation of going out and fixing artists and fixing tours and things like that. Well, that can't be an easy gig, right? Because Sabotage, they're the opening band of you said uh, it was Megadeth and Dio, right? And that's just, Correct. I mean, that's just got to be a massive party, too. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, I finally came off the tour after three years when uh, I stood up in bed with the bus driver, opened, uh, knocked on my door to get uh, his room key, and I stood up and I said, Callum, I only got ten hostages. Counting <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Uh, that's when I knew I had to come home when I was going to have a nervous breakdown. But uh, during that same time and, and even after, I was uh, booking the New Music Seminar, which was the largest music conference in the world. Right. And that was 35 venues, uh, five, six bands a night. I mean, I was booking Nirvana and Pearl Jam and artists like that before they were even signed. And that was when punk and new wave and hip hop and the metal, you know, Van Halen, Motley Crue on the West Coast. That was such a special time in music. When you went from tour managing to sabotage and quit that, directly after that you started tour managing the Allman Brothers. Were both of these acts international acts, or was that just the good old USA that you were touring with them? For them, it was uh, the USA. The person that got me my international experience was an artist nobody would have heard of, and that was Nick Seegers, Pete Seegers' nephew. Okay. He was from Holland. He was a folk artist, and he took me all around the world, including Russia and a lot of places like that, and that's you know, where I was, him and I were just going, you know, country to country around the world. And I just loved international. In fact, all my acts were big internationally, more so than America after the Almond Brothers. So interestingly enough, I think it was 1996, I went backpacking. I was just graduating from college and I went backpacking all around uh, Europe and the UK. It was the first time I'd really left America. And by that time, I'd seen Jeff perform twice live. And I remember coming over into Paris in particular. And there were still photos of him all over the place. I mean, it was, it was impressive how France really understood Jeff Buckley. And I think the, uh, you know, the entire EU or the UK got his music much faster than America did. Well, I think that has to do with uh, every market outside of the U.S. and Germany are very national-oriented. What I mean by that, you go on a radio show or you do an interview on a publication back then. This was really before the Internet. Um, it went national. Where in America and Germany, everything's regionalized. So you have to tour a lot harder, more cities, you have to do more interviews, et cetera. Well, so. So you could break, break easier, is what I'm saying. Right, yeah. Well, it seems like you had a lot more label support. I mean, you know, uh, in certain countries that were kind of um, promoting, I don't know if you call it Anglophone music, but, you know, music from the United States and the UK was easy to get over to France and other parts of, of the EU. No, it's true. Uh, but France, they were the first ones that really, well, the UK too, but France in particular, um, the record company was just so passionate about him. And they came up away in the early days when he was on tour on his uh, Live at Chennai EP with uh, French media. Right. So they were on it right from the beginning. Here's something that I find really interesting. In preparing to talk to you, again, I'm one of the first people that pre-ordered your book when it came out because I, I really wanted to find out as much missing information as I possibly could about Jeff Buckley. 
So I thank you for that because your book's a tremendous piece of work. Anyone who is interested in Jeff Buckley, this is the book you should read. There's other books out there. Don't waste your time. You're not going to learn anything from it. This is the book that you should read. But I will tell you this, Dave, the first time I read it, uh, my experience was I was trying to fill in all the gaps about Jeff Buckley. And from the time he, you met him till the time he passed away, everything that happened in between. And there was a lot of me just looking at the book from the perspective of what happened to Jeff. But I'm glad that I got the opportunity to sit down and reread it uh, in preparing for this interview, because I guess as a, a reader, I think a lot of people were paying t- attention to the Jeff Buckley side. But when you reread it, you realize, oh, my gosh, this story involving you is highly fascinating. Uh, and there was a lot of emotion and there was a lot of pain going on. Uh, and have you, is this something that people have commonly told you that, you know, the first time they read it, it's all about Jeff. But when they read it a second time that, wow, it's, it's heartbreaking what you went through. Yeah, there's a couple the, the reviews of the book and my interviews have been, uh, there's been a couple consistencies. And one is uh, somebody would say, you know, it took me three days to read it and every night I couldn't wait to get home because I said, I'm going to spend some time with Dave. And the second thing was uh, they felt they were in the room with me and Jeff. And the second thing was uh, the honesty about it. It wasn't like a a sugar uh, piece because a lot of artists just write you know, about how great they are and not tell the truth. I read Greg Allman's bio and I said, who is this guy? I managed. <laughs> um, but the second thing was that they, you know, they just, they felt the honesty. Uh, and also, this was the first time myself and a lot of those people ever talked about Jeff. So the other books talked to people that knew him before he released Live at Sinead, but he was on the road all the time for three years. So they couldn't possibly know what Jeff was going through what he was doing well we all did and i also knew what kind of questions to ask the other journalists didn't have a uh they weren't attached to the subject matter but uh yeah there was a a large consistency the other one was people were learning what it was like about the artist management relationship and what goes on behind closed doors they found it fascinating yeah i agree with you i mean one of the things that i loved about it is sort of the brutal honesty uh, that is portrayed between you and Jeff. I love the fact that it didn't seem like... Uh, it, what I got from it, Dave, is it doesn't seem like you're the type of guy that takes shit from anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's got me into trouble. <laughs> well, I mean, look, for anybody who hasn't read it, so to paraphrase this, just a few of the important reasons why I say that is because, you know, the book opens with you meeting Jeff and basically walking away from the meeting because Jeff's late, basically telling him to screw off, I'm not going to deal with this crap. I love that in the book there is a quote where... Uh, I believe it was from The Village Voice, a gentleman by the name of Robert Criscow, uh, who reviewed yeah. Jeff and called him a syncretic asshole, followed by your comment, which was, do you remember Criscow and his kind, or I think you said Criscow and his kind can go fuck himself, which I thought was brilliant. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> anybody who can, who can you know, write a negative review of Jeff's work or Jeff's performance or, you know, or Grace, yeah, you know, you're just talking to an idiot, in, in my opinion. Yeah, well, they all have opinions. That's what they get paid to do. But you got to tell an artist, don't get too high and don't get too low. So let me ask you this. At what particular point did you, was it really at Jeff Buckley when you stopped being a tour manager? Because I, I remember, I believe, uh, you, you, you were with them for most of the tour, but then when you fell ill, you were kind of off the scenes as the tour manager. Since then, have you continued to be well, a tour manager? Not, I wasn't, no, I, I wasn't his tour manager. I just went out for the first few weeks to get to know him to write the marketing plan. Um, we, we had just met, so... 
the best way to get to know each other is spending 14 hours in a car. And I'd managed the Allman Brothers before that, Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. And I'd been managing probably about six, seven, eight years by that point when I met Jeff. So, um, yeah, I was the lead manager on, on all of it. Yeah, and I believe actually it was, I guess maybe I was adding tour manager when I should have just called it manager, and it was kind of a co-management. Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name. Who did you co-manage Jeff Buckley with? Uh, George Stein, but, you know, like I said in the book, the reason I wasn't really interested in managing Jeff, I hadn't heard him sing at this point, but uh, perform, was because I knew I'd be doing all the work. You know, an attorney, you know, one thing I learned about being a manager and knew before I became a manager, in order to manage, you need to know the areas you're managing. You're not so much managing the artists as you're managing the people around the artists. So I worked retail during college. I worked as a publicist. I worked as a tour manager. I worked at a label. So you know how to manage people. So, for instance, if Jeff was going to be in Cleveland, I knew the music critic there. And I would call the label and say, have you talked to Jane at the Cleveland Plain Dealer? Oh, yeah, we did. Well, that's funny. I just talked to her. Her deadline's tomorrow, and she never got a, a CD. And that would catch them out because you knew of the deadlines. So they're always looking over their shoulder. Let me ask you this. As, when you put this book out, it must have been tremendously difficult for you because you're, you're rehashing something that is very dear to you and um, hard, to, hard to go through again. Are there any parts of the book that you regret putting in there? No. Um, I, it was hard getting the other people to speak. In fact, many of them have not read the book. My wife, who was his promotion manager, and that's how we met over at Sony Europe, uh, just finally read it about a month ago. Really? And it's because, yeah, when I first went to people to talk, they, they didn't want to relive it. It's kind of like if I told you your parents died in a tragic car accident, and I said, let's go back and revisit that night when your parents just got mutilated in that car wreck. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, no, don't, don't want to go there. Uh, Chris Dowd still hasn't read the book. Uh, Fishbone uh, and Fishbone, he, he was just best friend. Yep. I saw him recently, and he said it's still sitting on my coffee table. You know, there's a really good quote, I think, at the end of it. When you were kind of, at the very end of the book, you were, you had all the different people involved with Jeff's professional career, writing about the beginning, writing it in the middle, and writing about how it all ended. Uh, and I, I found that I think her name was Susan Silver. Uh, and if I'm right, she was at some point involved with Soundgarden. Was, that, was her name Susan? Was it Susan Silver? Oh. Susan Silver was uh, Soundgarden's manager. Sarah Silver was a European marketing manager. Ah, okay, okay. So I, I, I put the wrong dots together there, but I, I do remember reading in Sarah Silver's very ending of the book that she basically said once, I, I believe once everybody, because there's a real tragic ending involved with everybody who helped Jeff Buckley's career being sort of let go from the label of any future responsibilities of working on, you know, the posthumous releases. And I think she put it best that I think since that day, she has no longer ever listened to the music and has put that memory 100% behind her. And it seems like a lot of the people uh, were sort of the same way in that group. Uh, kind of once they were done with it, it was too painful to, to rehash. So I have to ask, I mean, how, how was it that you were able to get over this to tell the story? Well, when I first wrote, they wanted two chapters, um, the agency, CAA, Creative Artist Agency, was the largest in the world. Obviously, the first one was the death chapter, and I went out there to the garage of my house where all the boxes marked Jeff Buckley were still sealed from the lawsuit between Sony, the mom, and I. 
and uh, I wrote the death chapter and spent three days crying on the back porch while I was writing it. And my wife kept coming out, are you okay, are you okay? And I realized I never grieved because when that horrendous day came, I was picking up everybody else's spirits, my wife, my artists, uh, Columbia Records, the publishers, the agents, the promoters, uh, my family. And, uh, you know, I was just numb. Uh, Danny Goldberg, who was my co-manager with the Allman Brothers, managed Kurt Cobain during that horrific period when he committed suicide. And he called me up, and after Jeff disappeared, he said, you're part of a club now you don't want to belong to. And he said, one day you'll get that call, and sure enough, two o'clock in the morning, phone rang. Not too many months later, it was uh, in excess of the lead singer's manager. Right. And what do I do? This was before the Internet, you got to remember. Yeah, that can't so be... It, it was tough. I mean, when I went out to do the book tour, and I did music venues with the fans all around the world, the interviews at the beginning were tough. I did a, a press junket for Live Nation, and that's where they put you in a room from like 8 a.m. till 3 p.m., and every 10, 15 minutes, you got another interview, and you get an hour break. And after about eight of them, uh, it was a DJ I happened to know, and he said, I can hear your voice cracking. And then I finally just told the producer, I said, I got to take a break. But most importantly was when I did World Cafe, which is a national radio show on NPR here in America. The woman uh, whose who show, who's a host, loved Jeff. And she had read the book. We were doing the show the day it came out. She had already read it. And she started asking me about that day I got the call. And I was trying to keep it together. And I look up, and she's crying. Tears are coming down her face. And I was like, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if you go to jeffluckwithabook.com, you can hear the interview. You'll hear gaps after I quit talking because she's composing herself. And that was the hardest. I used to make a joke every night I did the, the Q&A sessions. Uh, first part was live at Chennai. Second part was Grace Around the World. Third part was, you know, the tragedy. And... When I go into it, you see everybody with their heads hanging down. And even for me, I'd have to make a joke saying something like, you know how it ended. And then they'd laugh and it kind of like took the, you know, bereavement off of it. But it was tough. It wasn't easy. Well, I can't imagine, you know, in, and also in preparing for this interview, I was looking at other interviews that you'd done to try not to repeat all of the questions that you had before. And one of them I found really interesting because you did do this, you know, international book tour to do your Q&A, and that must have been exhausting for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things that I saw you say is, I think the last place you went to was Australia, and you'd mentioned to one of the interviewers that once this interview was over, you were going to look up at the sky and say something like, I hope I did you proud, and never talk about Jeff again. Why has that changed? Yep. Well, you're the first interview I've done since then. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um... I just felt like I wanted to put a stamp on his legacy. And once I put the stamp on the legacy, there was nothing else that could, good could come from talking about him. Uh, you know, it's there. It's done. Well, and uh, go ahead. First, I, first of all, I think you did put a stamp on his legacy. I think the book is fantastic, and I appreciate the fact that you... Uh, scheduled this time to speak to me because I'm, again, one of those fans that really has been influenced by his music and reading your book really, I think, 
I think the reason why you might continue to talk to people is all this effort that you put into this book and all the emotions that you had, I was thinking maybe you realized as you were doing this that other people had this profound effect upon his passing and they were looking for this for some form of healing. And maybe during the course of it you realized talking to all of these people about their experiences that in some way you're helping other people and in some way it's helping you as well. No, I, I agree. And I felt that. Uh, it was interesting. I did uh, one of my Q&As in New York City. This couple came up at the book signing afterwards and they said, I am so-and-so and so-and-so. And we met 15 years on the Jeff Buckley website. And we've been married 15 years. And you see the profound effect he had musically on him. Right. So that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, that is pretty cool. But no, it, 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 it's basically... Um, you know, it's it's still fragile talking about it. Um, the reason I said, you know, I was, the line I was saying was, I'm going to get on a plane in Sydney, and as we're taking off, I'm going to look up and say, I hope I did you proud. I never, the reason I never talked for 21 years was because I never talked about my artists when they were alive. And my, I take that trust very seriously of protecting an artist. So I said, why would I talk about him when he's dead? So that was kind of my mandate. I always said the artist and the music comes first. And I respect that, but I, I will say, again, I'm, I, you know, I'm one of those people that are very happy that you put this book out, uh, so thank you again for that. <laughs> uh, another thing that I found really interesting is I have never worked in the record industry. I've heard it is a real difficult industry to be in, uh, and I was really mad when I read the book about how I, I, I'd say everyone was unfairly treated after his passing. You guys created this artist, you managed him, you help break him, and then as soon as he's, you know, as quickly as they can, it seemed like they removed everybody from any responsibility of future management of what was left of his music. And that was really frustrating to hear, and I can't imagine on your side it was easy as well. Well, it wasn't at the beginning, but I have to say once it happened, I was relieved a couple weeks later because when you go into a meeting and his mother's there and people that weren't part of the project, that were let go and there's all these photos and I would get a, a every photo shoot I would do with an artist I would have them approve every shot out of that photo shoot and we'd number them and that way if they're traveling I can say which one do you want to use for the commercial single they go photo 34 there was no you know uh, no questions that's the shot and we'd be in those meetings and the estate and Columbia Records personnel would be saying well we like this one and I said but he didn't approve that one and I said, but that's, he's not here. Or he had an approved mix. And they said, let's go in and remix it. They said, why? He approved this. So I was, I was probably too close to the situation. And it was very painful to go through that. So in hindsight, I was kind of glad to, you know, just let it go. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, one of the things that I got from the book as well was the aftermath of the posthumous releases has they've really put jeff buckley's mom on the spotlight right i mean she's there in videos she's there in interviews she's there in the linear notes and i just found it very interesting that they've really utilized her as a marketing tool but your version of sort of how she ran control of it is probably a little bit different than the marketing perspective of her involvement in the music do you care to comment on that at all well, for legal reasons, I can't really go into it. I just, 
tell people, did John Bonham's mom do promotion tours? I will say I am on Team Dave Laurie from that side of it. And it was really frustrating once I read that. I just very much sided with you and the crew who broke the artist. So I appreciate that you put that, put well, that in there because it's, it's honest. Let me say one thing. We didn't break Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley broke Jeff Buckley. Um, we, we helped facilitate that. But um, he was very unique in how he approached things and did things. And I, we all never worked with anybody in our careers, and we've worked with some big artists that did it that way. So we just facilitated it. I remember when George said, my co-manager and I, during the lawsuit, I said, I'm settling. I had money in perpetuity. I said, I don't care about it anymore. This is not what Jeff's about. My wife and I just wanted to go away. And we settled, and he said, I broke Jeff Buckley. And I looked at him, and he was hardly there. And I said, you didn't break Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley broke Jeff Buckley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, you know? And it's, it's people that were riding his coattails, which is, it happens with every artist. Well, let me ask you this, then. Uh, the, the, the people in that book, though, did not do that. Okay, those were uh, legitimate, honest people. Let me ask you this. The, the catalog of music that they put out, it seems like there's been quite a bit, you know, during the sort of the same time you released the book was the, the 25-year anniversary of Grace. Since there, we finally got the release of You and I, which was sort of the, um, I can't remember, it's like the Adobo or the Aboto recordings. Uh, they've done, I guess they released In Transitions, which was more of those. Uh, and now coming up on Black Friday, they are going to be releasing, there's something, oh, it's like the, there's a radio show that's been wildly available as bootlegs over the year, but they're finally doing an official release. And I believe Spotify, they kind of did some enhanced versions of all the records, including a video that just came out about two or three weeks ago for what is known as the last recording of Jeff Buckley. Is that a little bit odd for you to see all this activity 20 years, 25 years later? What is your take on that? I really don't have a take. It's funny, in my interviews, people said, oh, have you listened to all this music? I haven't listened to My Sweetheart the Drunk since he died. I've listened to Grace maybe three times since he died. What I listen to, I've got in my car, is he did the second, the last two tours were in Australia, and the first tour was uh, after all the other touring around the world, and he did a live at Triple J radio recording, 24 track, and stayed behind and mixed it, mastered it, and he gave it to me and said, this is my live album. It's never come out. I actually played it in front of my Q&A sessions an hour before I went on. Oh, really? And Did you get in trouble yeah, for that? <laughs> I'm not charging anybody. And uh, they're all, all the venues pay, you know, BMI and ASCAP, so, or PRS. So um, what I have on that CD cover is sequenced by Jeff, arranged by Jeff, performed by Jeff, mixed by Jeff, mastered by Jeff, but most importantly, approved by Jeff. Ah, that's, that's a bold statement. <laughs> it's kind of like my way of putting the knife in and twisting it. Yeah, it's a punctuation mark, right? Yeah. Well, let's move on from, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to interview or to, to allow me to ask these questions about Jeff Buckley, but at the same time, uh, I think your career is not just about Jeff Buckley and you've accomplished a lot more. What happened after Jeff Buckley? Can you give us, after that period that was 1997, in the last 20 years, what have you been up to, Dave? Well, before I go there on the, on the book, I just want to give credit to my co-writer, Jim Urban. Uh, Jim was actually with me when I got the call in Ireland, uh, seeing another artist that I managed, Guitar Kenick. And uh, 
the research he did for this book and the, uh, you know, uh, just all the work he put into it, it's really what made the book the way, it, the way it is. He's a tremendous writer. And, you know, his days at Mojo and at Editorial shows a lot. But when Jeff passed away, it was probably about a month later, I got a call from Danny Goldberg. He was president of Mercury Records. And all my acts had been big internationally. And he said, and I never worked for anybody but myself. So all of a sudden, it was a division of Polygram, and I got the call to run international. So I went in and did that. So I went from managing three to five artists to overseeing over 300 artists outside the domestic U.S. Yikes. Kind of a shock, you know? <laughs> Yeah. But we had a lot of success. Uh, I broke Shania Twain Pop. I, I had Hanson Umbop. I brought Kiss back. Charted them in 13 territories, top five on Psycho Circus. We had the Boston's, Mighty Mighty Boston's, Cake. We were on fire. Right. Seagram's came in about 16 months later and bought it. And then I started up Artemis Records with Danny Goldberg. And it was more of singer-songwriters with, uh, you know, Warren Zevon, Ricky Lee Jones, Steve Earle. But we had a huge hit called Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that. That's the, the Baja Man, right? I mean, was that, was that a million sellers yeah. all over the place? It's an international hit? Yeah, I actually had them at Mercury, and they'd only sold over 400 records domestically. They were, they had, they were gold in Japan for me, so that was it. Um, at that point, I started up a company. I was managing after three years. So I'd been in the record business six years working at labels. Kind of had enough of it, and uh, went back out managing and Courtney Love, Duncan Sheik, among others, doing a lot of consulting. Then I went to consult JWT, the big ad agency, where I worked with McCartney and Little Steven, Bruce Springsteen, among others. And uh, it was at that point the business really crashed in 2008 with the economy from the illegal downloads, and it wasn't any fun anymore, to be honest with you. Um, they were bringing in younger people, paying them nothing. Um, it's a young person's game, and it's time for them to reinvent it like we did back in the 80s. So I produce a few shows now and then, but I turn down every man as an opportunity. It's just a, I don't have the patience for it anymore. It's too hard to make a living. <laughs> well, so what do you do to make a living nowadays? Honestly, I got an insurance agency. <laughs> you have an ins like you own an insurance agency? Yeah. So are you writing like home insurance policies, car policies, life insurance policies? It's mostly it's it's mostly major medical, life, etc. Um, I have a staff of agents. Uh, I will tell you, I haven't been sued in the last ten years, which is really nice. <laughs> uh, the music business gets sued all the time. I never lost, but I lost money. Uh, I probably was sued over thirty-five times. And because uh, everybody gets sued when somebody gets sued. Right. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I'm home at 530 every night. I don't have crazy calls coming at, you know, 2 in the morning. Come get me. I'm in jail. Or I got to go put somebody in rehab. <laughs> but it was fun while it lasted. Uh, how long? Then what was your, your timeline in the music industry? Because you started in your 20s, and it sounded like it had ended around 2008, 2009. Yeah, until I was 50. It was, it was 30 years. And how the heck did you go from that to insurance? When the industry crashed, I went up back on the road again. I went out with Lady Gaga's first tour, theater tour. And, you know, you're getting up at 6 in the morning, going to bed at 2 in the morning, and they wanted me to go to Europe with her. 
I just said to my wife, I said, you know, I, I, I'm too old. I'm 50 years old. I can't be beating my head against the wall like this on the road. Although I love the live show the most. Um, and a friend of mine, we were just having dinner one night. He had an insurance agency, and he said, why don't you buy into my insurance agency? I said, dude, I didn't grow up to be an insurance agent. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, the money comes in each month. I don't have to chase it. I don't have to sue people to get it. You know, it's like, I mean, it's boring. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm actually doing something to help people nowadays. We're not rocket scientists being in the music business. We're grossly overpaid. I do miss the travel. I don't miss dealing with the artists. I do miss the travel. Right. So, you know, how, if I'm right, um, you, you have two daughters, right? Correct. How old are yeah. they? Uh, 19 and 22. So they're they're close to being out of the nest or going in both into college. Is that is that the uh, career path for them? Yeah, one's out, graduated this year, and another one's in a junior year, her third year. You think either of them will have an interest in going into the music industry? Well, my youngest daughter worked at BMI, which is equivalent of PRS. She actually emailed me because BMI, Jeff was a BMI writer, so they did a big release party for me. And my daughter was, first off, you know, I remember having them backstage with Gaga, and they were coming out from God, talking to Gaga. And your dad's so cool. And Hilda said, my dad's not cool. Parents are never cool, right? But my youngest daughter's like, you have it. One, one goal is my dad. Well, she actually said the second one. The first one was get her to meet Justin Bieber when she was like 13. And when she met him, he couldn't, she couldn't even talk. Uh, she was so nervous. And the second thing was getting me a job at BMI. Well, she approached me three weeks ago, and she said, your old assistant, Manny, works at Universal. He got me to see Beaver. And I said, yeah, he's head of radio promotion. She goes, I want a job at Universal. So I just got her a job at Universal. So you never know. I'm so shocked that you, you've left the industry. I mean, it seems like you have such a wealth of information, and you've, you know everyone. I, I can't think of – well, let me ask you this. Is there an artist that you ever wanted to meet that you never met? I think when you're a manager and you meet artists, you see them with their clothes off. You know, they're human. You don't uh, don't have that fixation with them. Um, you see them worse than all. They're people just like we are. Um, not really. I've met so many through the years. Um, it, it just honestly was no longer fun. It was not, you know, budgets are tight. Um, the Internet... I actually had my foreword when I was first writing the book. I said, the Internet ruined the music business. And I said, there I went. I said it. And the reason I say it is because it's hard for an artist to rise above the noise floor because there's so much garbage on the Internet. It's hard for artists to become, you know, uh, where they can be seen and heard. It's harder, much harder. So it takes a long time for money to be made. I will say this. First of all, I agree with you 100%. I will say I think with the, with the Internet screwing over all of the artists, not that labels weren't doing it already, but I think it brought touring back to be an important role because that's really the only way that artists are going to be making money anymore. And even more so, uh, you have to actually be able to play, right? You have to be good live. And I don't think that you don't see as many rising stars as you used to. I mean, you know, first of all, Jeff's a whole other pinnacle of a rising star. No one else can touch him. It's just he's the litmus test for the best vocalist in the world. 
But the point being is, I, I'd agree with you, the internet did kill it, but I, in a weird way, it, in my opinion, it might have brought it back to bands now actually have to play. You can't have crap bands running around. Otherwise, you're just well, never going to well, succeed. That's, that's true. Um, the one concern, though, is, you know, record companies, yes, bring people over, but I could go in and make a million-dollar deal overnight for an artist and have $200,000 in my pocket. And, uh, I think you should do that. <laughs> I can't imagine you want to do that, my Dave. Last record, my, my last record deal I did was 125,000 advance. 25 was for the attorney, for the artist. I got $20,000, you know, and that's what you live on for the next two years. So the artist starts making cash. Yeah, it's not worth it. Nope. Dave, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, being on the traveling entertainer podcast. I found your book fascinating and I wish you all the best of luck in the future. Thank you very much. I'm glad you liked the book. All right. You take care, Dave. Okay. Bye-bye. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs And that concludes another episode of the Traveling Entertainer Podcast. I'd like to thank Dave Lurie for taking the time out of his day to speak with me. Again, you can find his book, Jeff Buckley, From Hallelujah to the Last Goodbye at www.jeffbuckleythebook.com. Give the book a read. You won't regret it. You can find the Traveling Entertainer Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn Plus Alexa. Or you can stream it live at www.travelingentertainer.com. And yes, that has two L's in traveling. If you have any questions, you can reach us at info at travelingentertainer.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to get out there and see the world. And while you're doing it, support live musicians. Take care, everybody. Oh, no, no, no.